passage comes from two books, um, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. It's printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Salmos 119, 9-16. ¿Cómo puede la joven llevar una vida íntegra, viviendo conforme a tu palabra? Yo te busco con todo el corazón. No dejes que me desfíe de tus mandamientos. En mi corazón atesoro tus dichos para no pecar contra ti. Bendito seas, Señor. Enséñame tus decretos. Con mis labios he proclamado todos los juicios que has emitido. Me recocijo en el camino de tus estatutos más que en todas las riquezas. En tus preceptos medito y pongo mis ojos en tus sendas. En tus decretos hay un mi delite, y jamás olvidaré tu palabra. 2 Timoteo 3, 14-17 Pero tú permanece firme en lo que has aprendido, y de lo cual estás convencido, pues sabes de quiénes lo aprendiste. Desde tu niñez conoces las sagradas escrituras, que pueden darte la sabiduría necesaria para la salvación mediante la fe en Cristo Jesús. Toda la Escritura es inspirada por Dios y útil para enseñar, para reprender, para corregir y para instruir en la justicia, a fin de que el siervo de Dios esté enteramente capacitado para toda buena obra. We're going to take a look at these two passages um, briefly, and then we'll have a time of Q&A immediately afterwards. So please do feel free to uh, be thinking of questions that you might want to ask, um, and feel free to ask them uh, when we get to that segment of our time together. Uh, but let me stop and pray before we continue. God, we thank you for this time. Um, uniquely carved out by you, God. We know that every person is here not by accident, but that you have brought us together individually and together as a church to hear from you. And so we pray 
that we would hear from you, that you would unstop our ears, and that you would open our eyes to see you and to receive what you have in store for us. We pray most especially that we would know a little more about Jesus, the gospel of grace, and that you would change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started this new teaching series, uh, which we're calling Growing by Grace. And it's a series where over the next several weeks, what we're going to be looking at are different practical tools and ingredients for spiritual growth. Uh, Scripture, meditation, uh, prayer, Sabbath, community, serving other people. Solitude, suffering. It's different things that God uses, that God has blessed and said, these are things I will use in your life to draw you into deeper relationship with me, to pour out more of my spirit and my grace upon you. And we called it growing by grace because as we talked about last week, it's grace that fuels our growth. It's not just beating ourselves up or just bearing down and yelling at ourselves like an angry coach. Or it's not just simply gritting our teeth and making things happen. But it's grace that enters into our souls and changes us from the inside out. Changing our motivations from that of fear and guilt and pride. And allowing us maybe for the first time to do things for God and for other people simply out of love. Joy, gratitude, growing by grace, maybe a different way of growing. And the first tool, the first ingredient that we're going to look at today is the Bible. The Bible. The Bible is, of course, an ancient collection of 66 books um, or different literary works that were written uh, somewhere between the 16th century B.C. to the 1st century A.D., multiple authors that wrote in ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, different languages, in all sorts of different genres, historical narrative, poetry, biography, epistle and letter, all these different forms of communication that we have where Christians have always embraced these scriptures as God's personal communication to his people. We'll talk more about that in a second. But maybe it's actually poetic metaphors that we find in the Bible that help describe what the Bible is that will be more beneficial even than just a dictionary definition of what the Bible is. Different places we find that the scriptures, the word of God, are described as water and bread and even as milk that a newborn baby craves. We find that in the book of Peter. In other words, the Bible is something that feeds our souls, that sustains our spiritual life, just like physical food and drink sustains our physical life. Or the metaphor of light and lamp. The Bible actually helps us to see things spiritually or even practically in all of life, giving us guidance, especially in areas of darkness, especially the darkness of our own hearts. Or the metaphor of a sword. 
This idea that the Word of God can actually penetrate through the thickness and the callousness of our hearts. Can actually get right to the center of who we are and transform us and to change our lives. Or a mirror. We're told that the Bible is like a mirror where you actually get to know yourself and see yourself truly, warts, flaws, and all, even convicting you of all the ways in which you fail, showing you the ways in which you fall short of all that God desires and commands of you. Not only a mirror, but also rain. The Bible brings refreshment. Refreshment to our souls. Or the metaphor of honey. That it's sweet when you taste it. It makes you want to have more. All these different word pictures that we just heard here. I wonder which of those draw you in? Which of those tantalize you? Or which are ones that you feel you most need of the word of God today? Because maybe you feel like you're in a time of darkness and you're just searching for light. Or maybe you feel like you're just starving. You don't even know what you want to feed yourself with. Or maybe you know you've been feeding yourself with many other things. Relationships. Work. These things that aren't going to satisfy, not if you're trying to satisfy your soul with them. Is that the hunger you've brought with you here today? Or maybe refreshment because you just feel weary and tired and worn out. And you need something like a nice rain shower on a hot summer day. I know on a day like today, it's hard to imagine that. Use your imagination. Today, we're looking at two different passages. One from the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, which is one of the longest meditations on Scripture, what the Bible is. It's also the longest uh, chapter uh, in the entire Bible. And the book of 2 Timothy, which was written by the Apostle Paul, it's one of the last letters that he wrote before he was executed. And he was writing it to his protege, uh, a young man that he was growing up in faith to become a leader in uh, local church or churches, Timothy. And what we just simply want to point out in our time, our remaining time, are just four uh, quick little thoughts. We'll go through them and then I'll open it up for questions. But it's these, uh, that the Bible is personal. The Word of God is personal. The Word of God is delightful. It's meditational. And lastly, it's transformational. Personal, delightful, meditational, and transformational. So first, personal. Friends, the, the Bible contains information, but it's more than just information. It's more than just factual information that we find in Scripture. Do you or have you been approaching the Bible in that way? In our passage from Psalm 119, you have to notice that no less than 10 different times the psalmist, the author, uses the word your in reference to God's possession of his word. It belongs to him personally. Your word, God. Your commandments. Your word or promises. Your statutes. The rules of your mouth. Your testimonies. Your precepts. Your ways. Your statutes. Your word. The author here is very aware that scripture contains words that belong to and come from a person. They come from a person. The Bible is more 
than an ancient text. It's not less than a text, but it is more than a text that you simply read. It's actually, in fact, if you can get your mind around it, it's personal communication from the God of the universe. It's why theologians and even the Bible itself describes the Bible as the living word of God. The voice of God here now speaking to our souls and to our hearts. I know for some of you that may feel like an intimidating proposition or maybe a fanciful one that you feel like is maybe the very reason why you walk away from spirituality and the things of God. Outrageous claims like this. Supernatural claims. Or maybe some of you who have been Christians or at least religious folk for a long time and maybe you've spent a lot of time in the Bible, in the Word of God, but maybe you too have forgotten this idea that it's more than a text, friends. It's personal communication from God himself to you. His words come alive as we read it by faith. That there is a sense in which through the faith that we apply to these texts and these words and these phrases and these pages, that you actually do hear spiritually God's voice through his written word. We hear the word of God in scripture. We know that we are hearing from God himself. Because the Bible tells us that God is personally present in the words of the Bible. Because they're not just written by human beings. A wild claim. But our passage in 2 Timothy, verse 16, tells us it's not just written by human authors, but these words, in fact, are co-authored, if you will, by God himself. Verse 16, all scripture is what? Breathed out by God. Literally exhaled by God. Yes, written by human authors in human languages, in a specific time in human history, but also simultaneously, mysteriously, yes, supernaturally written by God himself as he guides and directed these human authors. Friends, I just wonder if we would just pause on that thought, if it might possibly reignite a sense of awe of what we have before us. Even if it weirds you out, will you let yourself go there for a second? All scripture is breathed out by God. It is the voice of God speaking to us. These written words coming alive in our hearts. It's his personal communication. There is a huge difference, friends, if we get this and we're putting the Bible in front of us and we're starting to read it, whether for the thousandth time or for the first time, there is a difference between coming to the Bible to hear about God and coming to hear from God. There is a difference between coming to it, believing that it's a text that's to be read rather than a voice to be heard. It's a powerful thought. 
if we would actually believe what the Bible says about itself here. And if we could just get our minds around this, open up the Bible, settle down, again, whether if it's you're exploring a new spiritual journey, or if you're just trying to grow in your faith as a longer-time Christian, a follower of Jesus, do you see your time as not just reading, but dating? (laughs) Spending relational time with the God of the universe. Because He is present when you actually approach the Word in that sort of way. That it's not just Bible reading that we're talking about. It's not just cognitive processing of human words and flipping pages and just mentally and intellectually and rationally trying to understand the human meaning of these things. But rather, there's a sense in which you are literally in the presence of God when you hear his words and when you take in his words and when you let them start to shape your life. What might that look like? What kind of attitudinal difference might that make for you as you actually start to open the Bible? And if you don't have a Bible and you need one and you'd like to start reading one, please let us know. We have some spare ones. We're happy to give it to you complimentarily uh, from the church. Would love for you to go on this journey to see the Bible as God's presence And to see it as a genuine conversation with God, hearing from God and speaking back to him in prayer, a dialogue of back and forth, like a real relationship with a real person, because that's what God is. That's what he offers to you. First of all, it's personal. Scripture is personal, but secondly, Scripture is delightful. It's delightful. Twice the psalmist in Psalm 119 talks about joy and delight that he has in God's word. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. So it's like you win the lottery or you get that knock on your door and publisher's clearinghouse comes with those balloons and they tell you with that big cardboard check that you've won a big mother load. It's yours. Your mind immediately starts to dart around about what you're going to do with that money. All riches. Just a crass example. But the psalmist says, I rejoice as I would when I first opened that door and I'm informed of the riches that I have. Or verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. That approaching Scripture is not just a mechanical exercise, something that you just do out of routine or out of dead duty. And it's not even just simply a functional thing where you're just asking yourself, what am I getting out of this time? Where you're sitting there in the Bible and you're trying to rush through a a couple sentences or a couple words, and the only question in your head is, well, I better get something out of this. It better help me today. Not just a functional thing. Friends, it's a, a delightful thing. A delightful thing. And even that idea, I know for so many of us, it can seem so foreign. Joy in reading the Bible. 
I, I wonder if some of you actually may resist reading the Bible because of bad past experiences that you've had with it, or maybe bad uh, experiences with communities that have tried to twist your arm and force you by manipulation or guilt or whatever it might be to read the Bible. I remember myself earlier in a time when I was growing as a younger Christian and just seeing how much of my approach to the Bible really was motivated primarily by a sense of duty and primarily as an understanding of the Bible as do's and don'ts. You know, first of all, duty, this sense of, well, if, if I just keep doing this, then maybe God might like me a little bit more. Or this idea that, well, you know, uh, a little bit of the Bible and uh, a little bit of showing my faithfulness to God. Well, maybe that'll keep God on my good side. Or maybe I'll just learn a few things that'll uh, make my life better. And then by being better and trying harder, then God will accept me or bless me a little bit more. And even being in communities where at times that would be the only question people would ask you. I don't know if you've been in religious communities or Christian communities like this, where instead of, hey, how are you doing? The first question is, have you read your Bible today? Or how are your quiet times going? Uh, Another phrase that's often used in the church for a, a, a devoted time, a quiet time of Bible reading and prayer and time with God. The very first question and sometimes the only question, how's your QT, your quiet time today? And that just translated into my own heart, my own life of just being motivated by this performance mentality. I have to read the Bible to make God love me. It's so subtle, isn't it? Sometimes it's less than subtle. Sometimes it's explicitly said that way. But if you believe that, I promise you, you're not going to be reading the Bible for very long because it just gets exhausting and it starts to leave a bitter taste in your mouth. Or the other thing that I used to do, which is just to see the Bible as a list or a compilation of do's and don'ts, commands and threats. And I tell you, if that's all you think the Bible is about, it'll make you worry, weary. It'll make you worry, too. It'll make you weary, tired, feeling condemned. Why would I want to open myself to that when there's no hope and no good news, no grace? That was the experience of Martin Luther, the old German monk who eventually helped trigger the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, where he said, I hated reading the Bible because every time I opened it, all I saw and all I heard was every way that I was failing, and that was it. And maybe that's why you've walked away from the Bible too, because that's all you see and that's all you hear. And let me be clear, friends, the Bible does say a lot about the ways in which we fail The Bible has a lot to talk about our darkness and the sin in our lives. It does. We said before, the Bible says it's like a mirror in front of us, helping us to see things and blemishes that we don't want to see. But it's got good news. It says there's grace for sinners through Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness and love and acceptance. There's a righteousness that God will count into your account, not because you earned it, but simply because God gives it to you freely if you embrace his son, Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. Friends, how differently things run in the way that we approach the Bible when we start to believe this message of grace. When we don't, we start to use the Bible as a way to earn our way into God's favor or we avoid the Bible. Either way, we will give up on reading the Bible. The psalmist has discovered something, and that is this, that the Bible is primarily about the grace of God. 
The Bible is primarily about the grace of God, refreshing the souls of sinners. Look at where the psalmist finds the source of his delight. Verse 12. It's real small. You might have missed it. He says, blessed are you, O Lord. And if you notice the small caps, the capital letters there, we've talked about this before in the past, but that's where our English translations are trying to translate the personal name of God that we find in the original Hebrew language. It's the name of God, Yahweh, which was translated into the word Lord because there was such reverence in the Jewish community, not wanting to say the name, but rather obliquely just refer to it. So rather than translating Yahweh, they would translate it Lord. But this was the personal name of God. You ever know a person of some stature, maybe in your line of work, maybe someone you've come to know, and just what a joy it can be when they finally take that step and they say, you know, don't, don't call me Mr. So-and-so, just, just call me Duke. Not that I'm an example of that in your life. You could care less, right? Like, I already call you that and worse things, too. No. Or even the way in which we take people's names and we name drop using their first name, even though they're a person of some stature, as if we, because we want to communicate how in we are with them. God gives his personal name to Israel to show them that they are in with him. That they're on a first name basis. Yahweh actually means eternal, endless. I am who I am. He is reminding them that I am the infinite God, an awesome God, a boundless God. And yet that God said, you, I'm going to set my love upon you. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to show you favor. You are not righteous, but I'm going to treat you as if you are righteous. That's my grace. The way in which the psalmist seems to relish in this idea that the God of the universe actually came down and spoke. And he spoke personally. And he spoke in a delightful way that when the psalmist thinks about God in this way and understands his promises and knows the love of this God, this personally revealing God, then he can say every word that comes from your mouth, I receive it as pure joy and delight. And of course, all the more we have this in knowing the personal way in which God has come to sinners through Jesus, which Paul says is the centerpiece of all of Scripture. In verse 15, the sacred writings, he said, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That the Bible is through and through a story about the God of the universe coming and loving people that don't deserve his love. God coming in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible is a story about what God has done for you. And in this way, the story of the Bible always through and through is about grace Because it's primarily about what he has done for us and not primarily about what we are called to do for him. I I wonder if just that thought alone might revolutionize the way that you approach the scriptures. That it's primarily about a story of what God has done for people that desperately need a rescue. And that he does so through his son Jesus. 
reestablishing a relationship with him for those that would embrace Jesus, an offer that's out there for every single one of you. And that if we would see the Bible as that sort of a story, rather than simply a list of commands and do's and don'ts and ways of encountering our failure with no hope in the end, would that not change the way we experience Scripture? Would that not start to make us say together with the psalmist in a later part of Psalm 119, Oh God, how I love your law. I love your word. Because it tells me things I would never come up with on my own. Things about who you are. Things about who I am. It speaks truth to me. Like a good friend that actually is willing to tell me hard things that I don't want to hear. As Paul says, the scriptures are useful for sometimes even rebuking and correcting us. Don't we want that when we're sane? (laughs) No, we don't want that in our defensive moments. But don't we want that when we know it's good for us? When we're sane in our faith? Because we know it gives us life. We know that it saves us from danger. We know that it puts us back on track. We know that it puts us back in the story of God and what he's doing in this world. It's a delight to see the Bible in this way. The grace of God in the Bible makes encountering God that way a pure joy and a pure delight. It's personal. It's delightful. Thirdly, it's meditational. This is what I mean by that. There are different ways of reading the Bible. Different venues. You can read it individually. You are engaging with the Bible even now. Preaching being one form of taking in the Word of God. You can do it in discussion and conversation with friends in an interactive sort of way. It's a wonderful thing that we try to do in our neighborhood groups. Different gears, big picture, zooming into small picture. Trying to understand the technicalities of individual words and the grammar of scripture, all these things. But whatever we do and however we engage with the Bible, one thing it should always include is this idea of meditation. Meditation. We see this in the first part of verse 15, where the psalmist says, I will meditate on your precepts. And also other expressions that hint at a similar idea throughout this psalm. Verse 15, the second half, I will fix my eyes on your ways. I'll be entranced and focused upon your ways shown through your word. Or verse 10, with my whole heart, I seek you. I'm devoting my whole self to you, not just a passing glance, but I'm bringing all of myself to look for you in your word. Or verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart. I've literally taken your word into myself, into my mind and into my soul, and I've stored it there. That's how much I am dwelling upon the words of truth and of grace that you have for me. Friends, meditation is probably one of the most important components to spending time in God's word, but it's also probably the most neglected piece. Because the tendency that we all have is simply to read the Bible rationally and intellectually, or even to analyze the Bible to take it apart, or maybe to pray separately and to engage with God in prayer, but we don't know how to do what's essentially a blend of all those things in what the Bible here is calling meditation. What does it mean to meditate 
on the words of Scripture? Does it mean to light some candles and to sit cross-legged in front of an open Bible? No, not necessarily. Maybe, but not necessarily. In fact, speaking of Eastern meditation, there is a real difference between the way the Bible talks about meditation and the way that Eastern traditions, religious traditions, tend to do it. And it's this, in Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty one's mind and soul. Whereas in Christian biblical meditation, the goal is to fill one's mind and soul. Yes, there is an emptying process in terms of trying to clear out different distractions and to bring in some focus, but it's not simply an emptying, it's actually a filling of your heart and your soul. To take something that you encounter in Scripture and to savor it, to to suck on it, even like a, a piece of candy in your mouth, to let it melt slowly rather than quickly just chomping down on it and swallowing it. To sort of chew on it and linger on the nuggets of reality and of grace, pressing it deep and deeper and deeper down inside of you, into your soul, until it catches fire. This is what meditation is. Until it starts to shape your imagination, it starts to occupy your heart so that it starts popping out in all different sorts of ways, kind of like the way in which we maybe unintentionally meditate on a song and you find yourself singing its lyrics randomly at times. We say, what? I can't get this song out of my head. It's called meditation. Or we just saw a movie and different lines or scenes from the movie pop into your mind and it just comes into our conversation. That's what's called meditation. Martin Luther, again, in the Reformation time, he did a good bit of writing and thinking on this idea of meditation. He said, meditation, to meditate on something means to chew over something in the heart, uh, to engage, as it were, in the middle or to be moved in the center of your being until the Holy Spirit comes and begins to preach it to your heart. One of the most powerful experiences personally that I've had of this, not as a practice, but just as an experience of God's word, uh, where just a simple nugget in truth of scripture just broke into my life was actually during college, my junior year. It was a time when I was growing in the faith, but I knew that there was something missing. And in fact, it was kind of a miserable season in life. I remember being able to look at different Christian friends And saying to myself, there's something that they have that I don't have. And there's something that they get that I personally do not get in my miserable Christian life. (laughs) A little oxymoron there. And it may have been the moment of my conversion. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it was a powerful evening. I remember being in my dorm room and just being upset and in pieces emotionally. I really believe it actually was girl trouble. I think that's actually what the issue was. (laughs) Complicated stuff, right? But also just a host of other issues and struggles that were kind of pressing in on me at that time. And after a series of weeks of struggling with this and reading the book of Romans and different books that started unpacking things that I started understanding slowly, this night... I just remember getting onto my bed and kneeling. It was sort of a loftish sort of bed. And so climbing up on top of it and having nowhere else to go and no one else to turn to but God himself and just weeping there on my bed 
in brokenness, but starting to repeat the words which just came to me from Psalm 139. Simple words. You have searched me and you know me, O God. You have searched me and you know me. God, you have searched me and you know me. God, you have searched me and you know me. And just repeating that in prayer again and again, when suddenly I just wept and sobbed in joy as something cracked open my heart when it finally occurred to me, this very thing that I had been missing for all my years, and what it was, was grace. But these words which communicated to my heart in a way that I had never understood before, that there's a God of the universe who, like Psalm 139 tells me, knows everything about me has a searching eye that has no barriers to it, knows every sinful and selfish thing I've done, even if no other human being on the planet knows it, knows every sinful and selfish thought that I've had and motive, even if the outward action looked good and loving and caring, every motive of the the heart, every desire, every attitude, every part of who I am, God knows it all and has every reason in his justice to cast me aside and to condemn me. And yet this God who has searched me and known me has loved me and embraced me and accepted me and called me his son. I finally started to understand what I'm just trying to communicate to you week in and week out in every part of the life of this church and this message of grace. But it was one night, friends, one night when it finally broke in in a fresh way, a powerful way, a moving way. Why? Because of meditation. Because I wasn't analyzing the words in that moment. I was letting it sink in. I wasn't just thinking about them. I was soaking in them. I was lingering over those words. I was chewing on these several key words from this one little song. When you're analyzing and studying a text, you're trying to grab a hold of it. In meditation, you're letting the words grab a hold of you. And I'm not saying, friends, just to be clear, that every experience of truly meditating on God's word electrifies you in an emotional sort of way. Right? I'm not saying it's always going to end up in tears or leaping joy or an immediately transformed existential experience of God. It's not that necessarily at all. That may happen. God willing, it will happen from time to time. But rather, the point is, are you actually, well, here's the implication. Do you give it time to do it this way? Or are you always just glancing at the Bible and after glancing at it, you say, well, look, it don't work. It never does. Or maybe you're just reading it intellectually and rationally, but you're not letting it sink down into your heart and you're certainly not letting it roam into your life and call you on stuff and transform you. Do you give it time? Do you give it space? Do you give it energy deep down in the gut of your soul? Lingering over the words of Scripture. Again, this is the piece that's most often neglected when people open up the Bible and try to spend time in God's Word. 
Meditation. Meditate on God's word. One of the best ways to do this, sort of to facilitate meditation, is memorization, right? Verse 16 actually suggests this. I will not forget your word. I'm going to remember it. Verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That I will linger on it because it's in my mind and not just on the page in front of me. I've committed it to memory so that I can draw from it on all times. And that I can metro with the gospel of grace and the words about it on my heart. And I can take the bus with God's word on my heart. And I can meditate as I'm walking. And I can meditate as I'm dealing with friends. And I can meditate while I'm at work. And hopefully not in a way that's distracting you from getting your work done. Yes, but you're savoring it. You're chewing on it. It takes time, though, doesn't it? Lastly, and really quickly, it's transformational. And I'll just say this just to close on this point. The Bible is meant to change our lives. Reading the Bible ought to transform our lives, ought to start to produce a new us. We talked about this last week. Ought to actually start to conform us to the righteousness of Jesus, help us to get to know him, and help us to become more like him. Paul says this in so many words in Second Timothy three seventeen, verse 17 there, that we're engaging with the words of Scripture, being taught, being corrected, rebuked, being trained up or parented in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, equipped for every good work in life. That your Bible reading shouldn't just make you a smarter sinner. That your time in the Bible shouldn't just make you a more intellectually empowered religious person. It is personal. You're engaging with God. It is delightful. And in meditation, it should be all these things, yes, but it should actually change our lives in a way that it bears fruit. If you're not becoming more like Jesus in your life, in your behavior, you're not actually truly reading the Bible in the way that it was meant to be read. You're not actually letting it bear the fruit that it was made to bear. It's not just about digging deeper just so that we know more things. Or just so that we know more of the Bible as an end in itself. The goal is to know more of God. And to love God by loving other people. And showing that in our lives. Is this something that you desire and that you crave? Is it starting to be honey upon your lips, as the Bible says? Sweetness that you're starting to taste? Is it something that you long for? Maybe even hunger for? Maybe you're starving for it. I know it might be a risk for some of you to dare to actually open up the Bible and let it speak to you. Or rather, to let God speak to you. Because that's what this is, right? Let he or she who has ears, let them hear. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would um, help us to carry in with us a, a, a new grasp of what your word is. God, we pray again that we would be motivated by the grace of God and by a joy in you and a love for you and not guilt, not fear, not dead duty, uh, not rote routine or religiosity not to perform for you, not to perform for other people, but rather simply out of love. 
Pray that you would do that and show us how. Concrete steps. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.